Our Father, may we not be conformed to this world, but instead we ask to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we may prove what is your good and acceptable and perfect will. Lord, grant us such a heart that we would fear you and always keep all your commandments, that it might be well with us and with our children forever. Father, bless us to be meek, that we may inherit the earth. Amen. We'll stand together for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading from uh, verse 1 to verse 12 of Acts chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 4 through 11. You can see there the title of the sermon is Ascension Focus. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So how can we avoid becoming distracted from the really the simple walk of faith that God has called us to? What are the common features of the distractions that effectively draw our focus away from Christ, away from his word, and away from the kingdom work that he has called us to. As we'll see in today's text, the disciples were pondering a worthwhile topic, yet from the human angle instead of from God's perspective. Also, we see the disciples gazing steadfastly toward heaven after Christ was taken up, after his ascension, displaying our human tendency to get stuck in the past and delay transitioning into a new phase of life with God. Christ and his angels help refocus the disciples, and by God's grace, we too will learn to remain focused upon God's calling upon doing his will while we still draw breath. You can see there, we'll uh, look at the verses 4 through 11. They were commanded to wait to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. We see that in verses 4 and 5. We see that the disciples will be distracted uh, by this timing question. We'll look at that in verses 6 and 7. Verse 8, Jesus refocuses his disciples. And then verse 9 He's taken up out of their sight. Verses 10 and 11, the angels refocus the disciples. We'll look at this and we'll then have some questions, questions along the way and a few questions at the end to 
ask ourselves, how can we know, love, and obey God more? So first of all, verses 4 and 5, they were commanded to wait to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So as our Lord draws to the close of his earthly ministry, having been raised from the dead with his wounds still visible, those touchable wounds, he speaks commands and expectations for their near future. He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem. They were supposed to go back to Jerusalem. Very clear command. And he commanded them to wait there for the promise of the Father. And he had already taught them about the Holy Spirit during his earthly ministry. And they were to go to Jerusalem and wait. And here he points them back in time to John's water baptism, this contrast. But then he points forward in time to the coming baptism of the Holy Spirit, which he says is not many days from now. So Jesus gives them specific commands with some fairly focused time frame that they can expect to see things happening. So they have some marching orders for the next few days. They've been told what to do. It's pretty clear. Now let's go back and look at John the Baptist and learn a little bit about his baptism and a little bit more about the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 3. Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. So, When the people back in the time of John the Baptist, when he was baptizing, when they were in expectation, it's because of what he was doing. They were wondering if John the Baptist was the promised coming Messiah. He answered their question by pointing to the difference in the two baptisms. John can only baptize with water. Water is wonderful, necessary for life, but it cannot do for us what the Holy Spirit, what only the Holy Spirit can do. The Messiah, the mighty one, will baptize the people with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is what the Messiah would do. This is the comparison John made. The Messiah will thoroughly, you see that word, thoroughly sort the wheat from the chaff. John couldn't perfectly sort it. No human minister can perfectly sort the wheat from the chaff. Christ will baptize his people with the power and the life of his Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus does. And Christ will baptize his enemies, the chaff, with unquenchable fire. So the baptism here of the Messiah is unto life and power for us, for his people. But what about those who are not his? Well, it's unto the destruction of his enemies. On the one hand, we see the Holy Spirit is living water unto God's people. And on the other hand, is a consuming fire unto his enemies. So where do we see living water, power for life for those of us who are his? John 7 is probably the clearest place we see this. On the last day, that great day of the feast, John, uh, Jesus stood, out, stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So he's not talking about water here. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is not real water. This is a symbol. And the text goes on and tells us this. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, now, fast forward to today's text. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's not quite yet glorified, but he's on his way, and he ascends in this text. And when he disappears into the clouds, we're going to talk about the glorification of Christ and his coronation. And that's when the Holy Spirit comes from the throne, some 10 days after his ascension. Now, what about this idea of consuming fire? 
Well, we need to understand God rightly. God is held out to us as a consuming fire in his judgment. First, let's look at his consuming fire of judgment against apostates. Listed in, uh, or taught to us in Deuteronomy 4. Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So Moses is warning them what would happen if they broke covenant with God and walked away from him. No longer would they have the, uh, the Holy Spirit as the water of life, but God's judgment would come. Going on, when you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land and act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days in it but will be utterly destroyed. And so when Jesus speaks to them of his baptism by the Holy Spirit, and he mentions John, you go back and we see the twofold ministry of the Holy Spirit, blessing his people and bringing destruction upon the enemies of God. Hebrews 12 puts it this way about the warning to those who would turn away from God, who are his. So the warning against apostasy. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Brothers and sisters, that's where we are today. We have been lifted up in Christ to Mount Zion. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, Since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And here it is at the end. For our God is a consuming fire. So the author of Hebrews is holding out the ministry of the Holy Spirit, reminding the people of God of the dangers of apostasy. The baptism of the Holy Spirit with fire is also brought before the minds of the disciples, very likely because they knew the ministry of John the Baptist, the preaching of John the Baptist, and what he said about the coming baptism of the Holy Spirit. This baptism with fire is also consuming fire of judgment against the enemies of God. Not just a warning to those covenant people against covenant breaking, but also a warning of what God will do to his enemies. Deuteronomy 9 speaks this way. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourself, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Therefore, understand today That the Lord your God is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you. So you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord has said to you. So that is an encouragement to the people of God. But here comes a warning. Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you saying, Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land. 
but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is a consuming fire against his enemies in this earth. And the same way that he used the nation of Israel to remove his enemies from the promised land, later Israel would be removed from the promised land after they apostatized and turned their back on him. And God used another nation against them. And were they a righteous nation? No, they were a wicked nation. God uses the work of evil nations to do his goodwill from time to time. And this is all under that category of God as a consuming fire. So recalling John's baptism as Jesus had already taught them, what would this have brought to their mind? It would have brought to mind both the blessing and power, blessing and power poured out upon God's people. It would have brought to mind the threats against apostasy and the coming destruction of God's enemies. This is where Jesus wanted his disciples to be focused, is upon God, upon the work of God in the earth. When he left, they were to await in Jerusalem for Jesus to pour out his Holy Spirit upon them in order to accomplish his commandments. But they get distracted. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. So instead of remaining focused upon our Lord's commandments and the coming baptism of the Holy Spirit and the great encouragement associated with that promise, the disciples have drifted into a specific aspect of the kingdom of God, the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. And they have even drifted further away by going on to probing into when Christ will restore the kingdom to Israel. Note that their kingdom question is regional. Christ's kingdom plan is global. So while they have learned this through prior teaching, their focus is still unbalanced. They're still focused more than they should be just upon Israel. Also note the kingdom question resides And what I'm calling today the realm of fruition. I think this is a key area where we can all be tempted towards distraction. And their fruition temptation comes in this form. When will this occur? Will it be at this time is what they ask. Christ's kingdom plan, though, is focused upon power and faithfulness. Power and faithfulness. Yes, there are promises of fruition, But we don't know when that will happen. His kingdom plan for us is to receive power to be faithful. The father himself will see to fruition. Fruition is the end of a process empowered by God. Let that sink in. Fruition is the end of the process empowered by God. And we humans, we want to run through the drive through and get it all over. God loves process. And we are a part of his process, not only in our own lives personally, but also in his church through the ages and in the work of Christ's kingdom throughout the earth over generations. We need God's power in order to reach the moments of kingdom ministry fruition. And he, in his kindness, may grant to you, to me, to our families, to our church, these moments of fruition. If you look around at this building that we're sitting in, this Building is a moment of fruition that God has given to Foothills Christian Assembly. And we rejoice in this, don't we? But back in the day, we weren't constantly asking God when we were going to have a building, were we? We just were trying to be faithful daily to worship him and to serve him. We don't need to know when the fruition will occur. Jesus pulls their thoughts out of this topic with this gentle rebuke. It is not for you to know times or seasons. If it was you or me, we probably would have said, it's none of your business. Jesus is gentle. It is not for you to know times or seasons. So often we, like the disciples, want to know things that are not for us to know. We want to delve into things that belong to God. How much time and effort have we wasted on such musings? 
How much more fruitful could we be in our lives if we did not allow our thoughts to go down these paths? You see, Jesus instead points the disciples to the perfect plan of our heavenly father. The father has put times and seasons in his own authority. You see, this is the father's plan. We can rejoice that the father has the plan. The father is carrying out his plan and the father is bringing the plan to fruition. And we don't have to muse and trouble ourselves with these things because our father has it in his hands. He's put times and seasons into his own authority. These things are so important. They're so precious that the father has kept them for himself. And this is meant to comfort the disciples who better to have the times and seasons in his own hands than our heavenly father. And this is meant to free their minds from the tedious and vain considerations that they've been tempted towards. And we need to know this as well. And our father comforts us as we believe these great truths. Matthew Henry says, the knowledge of it is reserved to God as his prerogative. It is what the father hath put in his own power. It is hidden with him. None besides can reveal the times and seasons to come. Known unto God are all his works, but not to us. It is in his power and in his only to declare the end from the beginning. And by this, he proves himself to be God. And you will often find that humanism goes into the realm of believing we can know and predict the future. So often when I'm at my office, a patient will look at me and say, well, how long is my daughter going to need to be on this medicine, Dr. Clark? And I almost always say the same thing. I say, only God knows the future. And then I follow up with it. If you ever meet a doctor that acts like they know the future, you should run the other way. I can give you guesses based on what we have, but only God knows. We'll see you back in a month and see how things are going. We must maintain this humble uncertainty about the future. This is why so often we know we say, Lord willing, don't we? When we speak of the future. So Jesus is teaching his disciples to let go of these future-oriented worries that twist us into Gordian knots and cause us to waste our time and effort. Jesus says to them, because they ask at this time, and his response is, not for you to know. I want us to note that Christ's rebuke, however, is not meant to keep them from discussing the kingdom as it pertains to Israel the restoration of the kingdom to Israel or Christ's future work in regard to restoring the kingdom to Israel. He doesn't say there's no more Israel. He doesn't say there's no kingdom restoration for Israel. It would have been a perfect opportunity for him to correct them. I believe we can deduce from this that it is a reasonable point of theology to discuss. The correction is in regards to their desire to know when this will occur. They want to have the time set before them. Bach says, there's no indication in his, in his commentary, Bach says, there's no indication in Jesus' reply, however, that anything they asked was wrong, except they are excessively concerned about when all of this would take place. All right, so we're going to pause for a moment and discuss this in idea. It's here in the text. Restore the kingdom to Israel. What is going on here? Well, I'm going to do just two things. I'm going to read Romans 11, verses 25 through 32. as probably the clearest New Testament example teaching on this. And I'm going to refer you to John Murray's commentary on Romans and ask you to read the section on Romans chapter 11. Some say that there is no future geopolitical Israel. And they say that the future for Israel is only spiritual. That's one main camp. Others say, no, there is a future geopolitical future for Israel in that land. And there's varying other pieces of theology that get attached to that unnecessarily, possibly. So don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm only commenting on that question and not all the other theology that might get attached to those questions. Listen to Romans 11. This is Paul to the church at Rome. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, 
that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is the nation of Israel he's discussing. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is discussion, it appears, for geopolitical Israel, the nation of Israel at that time. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So right now, at that time when Paul is writing, the nation of Israel is an enemy of the gospel. But that does not undo God's promise to national Israel. And here's the verse. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. There's a day of mercy coming for the nation of Israel. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. And in another portion of Romans 11, we see the ingathering of the nation of Israel. It appears to be the final crown jewel in the conquest of the gospel over all the nations. So this is an important topic and it's worthy of discussion, but not in terms of when is this going to happen? It can't be that way. So the discussion of the kingdom returning to Israel, it's a worthy discussion, but let's beware anytime we start to speculate about timing. Okay, so what does Jesus do in verse eight? He refocuses his disciples on the plan that God has for them. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he says, you don't need to worry about that timing. It belongs to the Father. But listen, and it, you know, he doesn't say it, but it's almost as if he's saying, as if I've already said to you, you know, taking them back to what he'd said, you will receive power. Good things are coming, right? They want good things, right? He's saying good things are coming as you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's power that's going to come on you. So after correcting their distracted thoughts by comforting them with the Father's sovereign faithfulness to fulfill his word, Jesus redirects their thoughts. We have to think right. He redirects their thoughts to the topic of his prior commandments, waiting for the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. That's their job right then, is to go to Jerusalem and wait on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, he takes them even deeper into the outcome of baptism with the Holy Spirit when he says, you shall receive power. It's another word of encouragement. They wanted fruition, right? When, Lord, when? You have to have power in order to lead to fruition. So Jesus reassures them that fruition is indeed coming. This is going to happen. But you just don't know when. Their labors will not be in vain because they will be imbued with the power of Almighty God upon their ministry work. Jesus encourages them after his gentle rebuke. Bach says, The disciples' calling, concern, and mission are not to focus on the timing of the end. Rather, they are to receive the enablement that God will give in the Spirit. They will be Jesus' witnesses from Jerusalem to the end of the earth. The Spirit is tied to power, which refers here to being empowered to speak boldly by testifying to the message of God's work through Jesus. And I just want to stop there. And this is going to be a theme throughout the book of Acts. There's a lot that comes to mind in today's world when we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to see over and over again is the essential fruit of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is this boldness. To live and to speak the gospel of the kingdom of God in the face of any enemies and to go forth as his agents in this earth to do his will. This boldness we must have. We will flee. We will run. Fear will control us. We will be silent when we should speak. We will avoid areas we shouldn't go into. We will not do his will if we do not have this power of the Holy Spirit working within us. This is the essence of what it means to have the Holy Spirit baptism. Paul says something similar of the gospel in Romans 1, 16 and 70. For him, 16 and 17, this is back to Bach. 
For him, responding to the gospel gives power to live in a way that is honoring to God and allows one to experience fullness of life. The term power appears 10 times in Acts, sometimes referring to miracles or other effects of power and other times to enablement. The enablement is in word and act, miraculous power in miracle and word. So we uh, are commanded to fly to the moon, essentially. We can't do it. The Holy Spirit comes and then we can. Because if we walk in faithfulness, it is a grand miracle. Every day that your sin and my sin are subdued and we walk in the Spirit, it is a grand miracle. We need the Holy Spirit of God. Now, Jesus then goes on to take them well beyond the limited considerations of their myopic souls, their thinking regionally. He's not just the Messiah of Israel. He is the King of kings over all the world. They need power from the creator of the universe, not only over their own sin and their own fears to go forth and do God's will and over their own mind's temptation to get distracted, but also because they now go forth to establish his universal reign on the entire earth against all the enemies of God that are out there. The nation of Israel, the Roman Empire, and every other institution and power in the earth set up against the Lord Jesus Christ. And I seem to remember there's about 120 of them when they get started. This is a very big deal, what he's telling them. He's already told them and he tells them again. Matthew Henry says that their influence should be great and very extensive. You shall be witnesses for Christ and shall carry his cause. One, in Jerusalem, there you must begin and many there will receive your testimony and those that do not will be left inexcusable. So yes, Jerusalem is a part of this. Your light shall thence shine throughout all Judea where before you have labored in vain. So here we see Israel is included. Thence you shall proceed to Samaria, though at, at, at your first mission you were forbidden to preach in any of the cities of the Samaritans. So this is the northern kingdom. All of Israel's coming into view now. Your usefulness shall reach to the uttermost part of the earth and you shall be blessings to the whole world. So it doesn't stop in Israel. It goes to the whole world. And they needed to hear this. They needed to understand what was going to happen when they were launched from Jerusalem. So instead of getting distracted by when the outcome is going to occur, the disciples are to focus upon the here and the now. Go to Jerusalem, wait, which we've already talked about is essentially praying. Wait for the Holy Spirit. It's a 10-day prayer meeting, basically, that they had there in Jerusalem in the upper room, waiting for the Holy Spirit to be poured out. And as we see, as we go on, we'll see the word of God was an ongoing part of that because Jesus stands up and he teaches them about replacing Judas from God's word. What's going to happen there? Power is going to come on you. The only future consideration Jesus presents is in the context of their mission. So when Jesus brings them into thinking about the future, it's limited to the commandments, to the mission that they have. They will go to all the world in a certain order So he gives them step-by-step faithfulness instructions in the here and now. So don't be thinking about the when. Don't be thinking about the moments of fruition. Don't be worrying about if you're going to get to see it or not. Be faithful. Verse 9, Jesus is taken up before their sight. Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. So to demonstrate to them, recall, of course, what they've just been discussing, to demonstrate to them the feebleness of their thoughts and the power that is available to them. Jesus' resurrected body. Okay, here's his resurrected body. He was dead. Now he's alive. They touched him. They ate with him. They heard the kingdom of God for 40 days. That's a lot of power there's more. Just as their minds had been held down by the gravity of, the, gravity of their own unbelief and distractedness and needed to be taken up into heaven's plan, their minds needed to ascend to God. Jesus' ascending body shows the downward pull of this world is of no effect upon the Father's plan. No force of any kind 
will stand between God and his people accomplishing the will of God. This should bring us great joy. Great joy. Now, the cloud, though, thrilling, points to Daniel 7.13. So, the Old Testament. The Bible has been instructing the people of God what this moment is going to be like. In some glorious fashion, this cloud, you see that word receives Jesus? I don't know. Did the cloud just hug Jesus? What did it do? I mean, did it, did it come around him and, and put some royal? What happened when the cloud received Jesus? I would like to see that. Maybe in heaven we might get to get a replay of that and get to see that. But anyways, the cloud receives Jesus. Even the cloud, bent by the Father's power, if you will, held out the arms of heaven. Receiving Jesus. Is this cloud part of the clouds of Daniel 7.13? I think it is. I was watching in the night visions. This is Daniel. He's seeing this. He's a prophet. He's one of the ones that got to watch from beforehand the coronation, the enthronement of Jesus Christ. I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. So uh, some schools of theology see this as describing Christ's return, but it's not. It's him coming to the Ancient of Days. And they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Jesus Christ is enthroned and Daniel got to see it and it involved clouds. And the disciples are standing there on that day, uh, approximately, well, uh, 40 days after Christ came back from the dead. And they're looking up into heaven there from the Mount of Olives and they're looking at the clouds and he just goes away. And this moment is taking place shortly thereafter where Jesus Christ is being placed over the entire universe. And they're standing there on that mountain, as you can imagine, with their eye, with their mouths just falling open. And we looked at it this morning. This is the fulfillment of Genesis 49, 10. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Shiloh has come and he has been given the nations of the earth. It's beautiful. Now I'm going to go through three other texts that show us Christ's enthronement. Okay. That show us Christ's enthronement. Now one of two of them are, uh, we've already looked at one from Daniel seven. We're going to look at two more from the old Testament Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 from David looking forward. And Revelation 5, Revelation written in the late 60s AD, 66, 67 AD, probably 66, looking back in time, being shown what happened around AD 30, approximately when Jesus was ascended and coronated. So two views from before, one one view looking back. Psalm 2, 1 through 9. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. This is the father who holds the times and seasons in his hands. He's laughing. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. The father has deep displeasure towards those who cast aside his anointed, who cast aside his anointed's word. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is the father speaking to the son. And this text is quoted in Acts 13 in reference to the resurrection. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So the father has set the son as king. The father's king on the father's holy hill of Zion. So David got to see that one. Of course, this is quoted in Acts 4, if I remember correctly, regarding Herod and Pilate and what they are doing. And it's an example of what evil political rulers do to the church of the living God throughout all of history. They set themselves up against the people of God. And right now, I'm going to avoid 
going into what's happening in our current world. <laughs> we're going to just keep moving ahead because we're seeing the same kind of thing happening right now. Psalm 110, verses 1 through 3. David looks ahead. God gives him a vision. Another one. The Lord said to my Lord. So here's the father speaking to the son again. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So see the rod mentioned again. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness. From the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. So, you know, the volunteer in the day of his power, that's Pentecost. You see, we gladly follow Jesus Christ when we see who he is and what he has done for us. And he, opened our, he opens our eyes to his beauty and his glory and his sacrifice and his suffering for us who were his enemies. And he brings us back to life. And we realize that we're going to live forever and our sins have been washed away. Oh, I will, I will follow him. I will gladly follow him. I will, I, will, I will follow him. So we are his volunteers in his day of power. And he was sat there at his father's right hand. David saw it happen. Revelation 5, John looking back. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. So this is probably the old covenant writing. that had been closed up. The canon was not being added to until this time. But one of the old elders said to him, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Who is that? Whose right hand is that? That's the father's hand reaching out. See? Come, son, sit at my right hand. This has been seen by the prophets of old. And John's looking back, it's already happened. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. So did the disciples understand what they were witnessing? Did they have the fullness of this understanding? Did they know that this was the moment of Christ's exaltation to the father's right hand? The moment that he was given his kingdom that Shiloh had come. The moment that his mediatorial reign began. Who knows? Now, I do want to just give a related thought on this. Um, Is the devil the God of this world? Our world right now? That's the question on the table. Well, let's look at the Bible. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. Who do not believe. So Satan was the God of that age at that time. Whatever age that was. Yes then. Yes then. Satan was the God of that age. But what about since that age ended? What age is being referenced? Well it's not the current age. That was the age of the old covenant. Before Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. And the old covenant age came to an end. Now, not gonna, we don't even have to get into that, though, in terms of proving that, because we can look at other even clearer ideas. John chapter 12, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So yes, the, at that time, the, Satan is the God of this world. Jesus calls him the ruler of this world. Now, there's another place in Luke chapter 10 that bears on this. In verse 19, Jesus tells the 70 when they get back, They have power over all the power of the enemy. That is an exclusive statement. There's no exceptions. 
the 70, the people of God, are given power over all the power of the enemy. That would include the devil's power. So the devil, and then just count your way down from the top demon to the bottom demon. Whatever powers they have, we have more. So is he still the God of this world if we have more power than he does? Verse 20 in Luke chapter 10 says, spirits are subject to you. A great change took place. A great change took place. Now, Revelation 12, this is the process that occurred. Around AD 30, when Jesus gets to his throne, the devil's not welcome in heaven anymore. You can go back in your Bible to Job, and where's the devil in the book of Job? He's in heaven. He's at the throne of God. He's making accusations against the people of God. He had some kind of legal right to be there at that point in time because the second Adam had not come and unseated him. So Revelation 12 tells us what happened and war broke out in heaven. Now, the devil didn't leave nicely. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth. And his angels were cast out with him. So that's what happened. But now in verse 12, there's a little clue about what's going to happen in a short time. And the devil knew he only had a short time. See, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath. Why is he mad? Why is the devil mad? Because he knows that he has a short time. About 40 years. About 40 years. Revelation 20 tells us what happens about 40 years later. The devil was locked up tight in the abyss in approximately AD 70. There's a lot of schools of thought on this. We don't have time to go through all the proof of this. I encourage you, as I've done before, to listen to Pastor Kaiser's sermon series. It's linked there for you to the first sermon. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon. Now, apparently the dragon is a little bit more docile at this point in time. Because it's, it's not even a named angel. It's just some angel. And it shows you the devil's power is waning. He's grown weak because the people of God are on the earth play, praying according to the blood of Jesus Christ. And we've been told in this same book, Revelation, that the powers of darkness are overcome by the faith of the saints. So the people of God are believing it. They're believing it. They're praying it. They're crying out to God for the devil to be bound and cast into the abyss. And God answers their prayers according to the blood of Jesus Christ shed upon the cross. So here comes this angel. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe it was the weakest angel God ever made. Who knows? But he got to carry the key and the chain. Having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. The devil's still, you know, he can threaten you. Got to be tied up tight. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. That's not a literal thousand years. We've been through this. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. He can't get out of there himself. And back in chapter 9 of Revelation, we see that prior, somebody came down, one of the angels came down with the key, opened the abyss, and billions of angels came out. I'm, excuse me, demons came out and caused a lot of problem during that time on the earth. So this is a real place, the abyss. And we even see uh, demons throughout the exchange with Christ often begging not to be cast into the abyss. They don't like this place. That's where the devil is. The devil is not the God of this world. The devil is at the lowest place of this world, the ultimate footstool of Jesus Christ. That's what I believe the Bible teaches about the state of the devil. Now, all of his demons didn't go in. So all of his demons are not there, but we pray them in there. That's what we do because we've been given power over them. And we take conquest in this earth by understanding who we are, that we are those who have been given his kingdom. We are those who've been given to reign in the earth. And we have the power by faith, when we understand this, to pray these demons into the abyss and to ask God to lock them in there and not let them out. In Romans 16, 
uh, Paul said to them at the end of Romans, you shall soon crush Satan under your head. It's not just a metaphor. The devil was run out of Rome. I believe that's what it says. If you look at Romans 16. So this is a bit of an aside. But when we talk about the ascension of Christ, the enthronement of Christ, and the results of that, the results of that include what happened to the devil. And it really is going to impact your life and how you walk with the Lord and how you pray and how you understand the authority that we as Christians have been given in this world. Look, I think there's one main reason why the devil oversaw this whole thing with coronavirus over the last couple of years. To keep the people of God from being right where we are right now. Worshiping him, hearing his word, understanding his victory, and then going out in faith and confidence filled with certainty and bringing the victory of the earth upon the heads of all the demons. It's their last gasp, perhaps. Who knows the timing, but they're on the run. Okay, verse 10. You can imagine any of us would be stuck there. I don't know. How long would you have looked at the clouds? (laughs) When he just goes up in the clouds. I mean, they've been with him. They love him so much. And they had 40 days with him and they didn't want to see him go. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So this moment grips their gaze. Who knows? They were there long enough that the Lord sent angels in order to get them moving along the path of faithfulness. Now, maybe even if they had just started going, the Lord would have sent angels to just encourage them. I don't know. But we can tell the purpose here is because they were not going. And they bring them back together with this phrase, men of Galilee. Isn't that wonderful? Men of Galilee. Have you ever thought of the disciples as the men of Galilee? Reminding them of their days with Jesus on the earth because he was of Nazareth, Galilee, and their roots. And the angels asked this piercing question, why do you stand gazing into heaven? And so the unstated message is very clear. Hey, the transition time is here. He's gone. Go and obey him. It's time to move on. It's time to do what you know to do. It's not time to look anymore into heaven. It's not time to try to figure things out anymore. You don't need to study anymore. You, you know what you need to do. Now go do it. Matthew Henry, he calls them men of Galilee to put them in mind of the rock out of which they were hewn. Christ had put a great honor upon them in making them his ambassadors. But they must remember that they are men, earthen vessels, and men of Galilee, illiterate men, looked upon with disdain. You remember that, right? I mean, the Galileans, they were like the rednecks of Israel, right? So we can, we can sympathize with them, right? <laughs> now say they, why stand you here like Galileans, rude and unpolished men, gazing up into heaven, What would you see? You've seen all that you were called together to see, and why do you look any further? Why stand you gazing as men frightened and perplexed, as men astonished and at their wit's end? Christ's disciples should never stand at and gaze, should never stare and stand at a gaze because they have a sure rule to go by and a sure foundation to build upon. So when we get stunned, there are these moments when we need the help of angels I want us to note the kindness of the Lord to send them two angels to encourage and direct them at this moment. Think of the Lord's kindness. I mean, we're going to see in a minute. Everybody else, all the other angels, they get to be in heaven seeing Jesus arrive, right? So these are, this is a special moment that these two angels would be asked to be there instead, encouraging the disciples. They were so dumbfounded and undone with wonder. Who knows? Maybe they would have just stood there until they died. Until death came. They were so, I mean, he just floated up into the air. A cloud received him. Matthew Henry says, two angels appeared to them and delivered them a seasonable message from God. There was a world of angels ready to receive our Redeemer now that he made his public entry into the Jerusalem above. We may suppose these two, loth, that means hate, hated to be absent then. Yet to show how much Christ had at heart the concerns of his church on earth, he sent back to his disciples two of those that came to meet him who appears two men in white apparel, bright and glittering, for they know, according to the duty of their place, that they are really serving Christ when they are ministering to his servants on earth. And I hope that we'll note the kindness of God to us as well. 
He's not only given us as angels. It would be nice to see them. It would be nice if they could just appear here for us and we could see them. Uh, he's given us his angels, but he, you know, we have more. We have his word. He has given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us his people, one another. He's given us his day. And he's still given us a place in his kindness where we can gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and worship him and learn from him and praise him and call out for his name and his glory in the earth and for the destruction of his enemies. He's given us his sacraments that are always going to undistract us. (laughs) When we eat the bread and we drink the wine, we remember Jesus Christ. We set our souls upon him again in his death upon the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And he is with us as we do this. So we are to be the happiest and the most grateful people there are. So with a few questions now at the end of all of those words, simple questions. Do you see in yourself a tendency to get distracted? And if so, what are the things that distract you? Okay, this can be in the realm of fears, can be in the realm of thinking too much about fruition. What are the things that distract you from God? And you know, you might need to speak to friends and uh, those who are in the Lord. Some things aren't distractions. Some things are important considerations. And it's not necessarily always easy to distinguish from those things. Do you get caught up in timing questions about the kingdom of God? I want to warn you about exposing yourself to teaching that sorely overemphasizes timing. And there's a wonderful book that's been written about all the predictions that Jesus was going to be coming back in this generation. And then, you know, a couple of generations, he's still not back. You can read the book. Like it's all these totally confident Christians opening their Bibles and saying exactly when Jesus is going to come back. I warn you away from that kind of teaching. If you hear that, hear the words of Jesus saying, the times and the seasons are in the Father's authority. Do not get distracted by that. I believe it is a grand distraction from doing God's will. Especially, especially if you actually believe it. What a danger that is. Because if you really believe that Jesus is coming back anytime, why build anything for the future? Right? So what do we do instead? We don't know about, we don't think about when fruition is coming. We just act faithfully today to God's commandments. We live out what he's called us to do. We love our spouses. We love our children. We love the people that God has called us to love in our work in this world. We participate in the transformation of society. No, let me say it better. We participate in the creation of Christ honoring culture through the lives that we live in our institutions and in our expression of faith everywhere we go. That's what we do. We press forward the crown rights of Christ everywhere we go. So what distracts you? Next, what is your calling? Right, see, I, have a, I feel like I have a pretty clear calling of what God's called me to do. So I get distracted, though. I can get involved in a lot of other things that are not a part of it. So the di- disciples had to learn how to say no to this distraction. What distractions do you have to learn to say no to? That, that really involves you knowing your calling, the things that you're to be spending your time in. Okay. Next. How's your relationship with God? Right? So the Holy Spirit being poured out upon us, we talk a lot about power, as we should. But there are three persons in the Godhead. And how's your relationship with God the Father? Have you spoken to God the Father today? How's your relationship with God the Son? Have you spoken to Christ today? How's your relationship with the Holy Spirit? Have you praised the Spirit of God today? How is your relationship with God? Have you communicated with God and have you communed with God today? It's really easy to forget that it's not just about power. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead 
not just a battery to insert into our engine. Okay? And so I hope that you will, like the disciples, take your gaze from heaven, be encouraged by the words of the angels, and go forth and just do God's will in your life. And watch out for distractions and rejoice in Christ ascended, Christ reigning, Christ pouring out his spirit, Christ ruling in the earth, and Christ sending you forth to be a part of this great and invincible work that he's doing in the earth. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice to be your people. We rejoice in the ascension of Christ, in his reign, and that he is the lamb who was slain, and he is the lion of Judah. And we are here together today to praise him, to worship you, O God, to know more of who you are, and to be encouraged and strengthened, and to pour forth our praise and our gratitude to you. Hallelujah, we say in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.